refuge in the Buddha Dhamma Sangha. So a sense of beginning this with that sense of recognizing the gifting of the teaching we have. Oh, that here are we in this great lineage that goes directly back to the Buddha. We can read the text. We're in a very fortunate time. So acknowledging that as we as we go about our practice, that we keep the sense of connection. Yeah. And the sense that here are we in a community of practitioners. We're sitting with friends in the Dharma. It was interesting to change position. And you know how different it can feel in different places in the hall in terms of our ability to feel each other and connect. And just sitting there at the doorway, just really feeling the sense of us flowing in and flowing out. There's practitioners coming into the diamond hall and going out again. and still this continuity going on of a timeless practice. On that note, we, Carol and I had a bit of a laugh because she said she moved it when everyone was sitting quietly and she thought, I wonder what people are thinking and just how the mind can suddenly start proliferating. You know, the, the sense of, well, what will everyone think? Just how dukkha starts arising from even so something so simple as that. Yeah. We had met and she's having trouble hearing my accent. I said, well, come closer. And then what to make of that? And it's the same with everything. And we can see how we construct suffering for ourselves. What will people think? That judging, critical mind, how we pick up dukkha, as Bavari did. Yeah, some nutcase came along (laughs) and put a curse on him. And then everything went out the window, you know, his mind couldn't settle. In this incredible experience of Dukkha, tormented, he'd believed something and admittedly he lived in a time when bad spells were a common 
trick, a common practice. You know, so he had a whole cultural heritage that would have made it very hard not to believe the rascal, as it's called in the sutta, the rascal who came along. And just seeing for ourselves how this process happens, how dukkha happens. And as I said last night, the, the whole sutta, in my experience as a practitioner reading it, is about dukkha, its cause, its cessation and the path. And it's, it's this beautifully articulated in this. And we get the sense of how playful the Buddha is in this. Because you'll notice if you read it, he's constantly turning around the Brahmin's language and their expectations. So if you read it lightly enough, you see at some points he's playing with them. And one of the ways he plays with them is with this idea of head splitting. Yeah. No, they're thinking, you know, they're kind of noggin. And the Buddha says, the head is dukkha. It is not understanding. Which in Bavari's case is very accurate. His head has become dukkha. You know, there he was going along, having joyfully done this sacrifice, having shared all the gifts he was given, and this thing happens. So the Buddha says, The head, said the Master, is not understanding. The head is split in pieces and destroyed by understanding. With its armies of powers and support, confidence, mindfulness, meditation and determination or energy, these are the powers that split heads. So they came along thinking about splitting heads in terms of curses and a whole different conception. And the Buddha plays with this sense of head splitting and talks about the way out of suffering. So this little piece is very profound because it's before things are really codified. But if you, you know, when you go and look at the Pali, these words correlate exactly with the Indriya. The, the faculties of the mind that we need to cultivate for the full blooming of wisdom. Yeah. So I thought just to talk a bit about them, just to give you a sense of this first bit of wisdom the Buddha gives. Yeah. To these minds that we know have been cultivating. So, understanding is the medicine. Yeah. And what, if you look in the T 
text, how it's talked about, is dukkha should be understood. The cause of dukkha should be abandoned. The ceasing of dukkha should be realised. The path should be cultivated. So the Buddha addresses dukkha. It should be understood. And what does it mean to understand? And and the teaching in the monastery was often talked about as to stand under suffering. The sense of picking it up, being present with it, not from a heedless, ignorant picking up, but from a willingness to be present, to really investigate it, know it. Yeah. So, dukkha should be understood. It's strong. And we see how we pick up dukkha through ignorance. Mm. Having talked about Anatta Pindika this morning, a flashback came to me of someone who I always had a kind of Anatta Pindika aspect to them. And that was when I first went to Amaravati a long time ago. And there was a woman there in her 80s who had taken an Agarika precept. I was observing the eight precepts, kind of. And she had been rescued out of an old boat home by Lumpur Samedo, yeah. where she had been languishing, kind of drugged in, in a terrible stupor. stupor. And why he rescued her was when the first bhikkhus arrived in England, I think it was Venerable Kaplavatu, she found him on a park bench, homeless with no shelter, no requisites. And she sold her grand piano to get the funds so that he had somewhere to live. She was a concert pianist. And so this tremendous act of generosity. Her challenge was she had schizophrenia. So she was unmedicated in the monastery and uh, at when I was, you know, been in the monastery about a couple of years, we were going into our winter retreat and it was decided I was to be her attendant. We got on incredibly well. I don't, you know, she had such tremendous faith. It was a pleasure to be with her. But of course she was had a really erratic aspect and she was old and so was our winter retreat when you know if you hope to be able to just sit there and meditate. But I'd I'd been asked to do this. And you know, loving this woman, I was really pleased to do it. And then 
we were getting closer to the winter retreat and Ajahn Amaro, who some of you know, came and said, the male novices and I have had a meeting and we have decided that you'll be the kitchen manager of the winter retreat. So I'll manage the, you know, there's about, I don't know, there's 60, 80 people there. So manage the kitchen, the incoming of food, and getting it so that the lay people who are there to help know would be know what to do, all of this. So and I could feel myself. You know, I've been hanging out to just sit on my meditation cushion where the real practice is. And I said to her, oh, Bhante, you better check with the nuns because they've already given me this task which will take a lot of time, really. And it was really interesting sitting that night in meditation and I saw I had a choice. I could pick it up. I could pick up suffering. No, the, it is not fair. You know, how dare they meet and decide this? That whole, you can imagine what you can do with any of this stuff. And just seeing that choice. It doesn't mean we don't take action, but can we not pick up the dukkha? What would have happened if Bavari had said, and just settled his mind into meditation. We'd have missed out on a wonderful sutta. But, <laughs> but you, you see the kind of choice. So it's to really start to see what's happening. The ways we pick it up and start proliferating. For me, it was a really wonderful winter retreat with a great deal of insight. And about four, six, seven weeks later into this, just when my solo retreat, a little week by myself, was coming up, Arjun Amaro cancelled it. Cancelled it. Because they decided They'd got back from being in Thailand at Lumpur Cha's funeral. They wanted a whole, they want all the community full blazes ahead together. The fact that mine was the last little solo retreat was unfortunate. And I could see myself pick it up and run with it. <laughs> it was really interesting. I felt desperate. You know, I'm a Kiwi, lots used to lots of space and I've been crowded with people for far too long and I've been so looking forward to seeing nobody. And then we were in this full on everybody together. And you see, you can see sometimes we don't pick it up, other times we do and it's terrible. And it always stayed with me, these two experiences. Thanks to Ajahnamaru. You know, the, the way we can respond. Yeah. 
nothing was going wrong. It was incredibly insightful. Yeah? It didn't feel like that. So in this time, just notice what you're doing. It may feel uncomfortable. It doesn't mean it's wrong. Yeah. What is our mind doing with things? Yeah. And at this point in the retreat, it usually gets really interesting because, as I was saying to someone today, we're on a kind of fast. We're being fed food, so we're not so much fasting from food, but there are four kinds of food. One is material. You know? So some of you are under the eight precepts, so there'll be a bit of hunger around that. But for most of us, we're, we're okay. But the other foods, we're on a big fast from. And the food that many of you will be really feeling the absence of is sense contact. Computers, phones, friends, work, TV, all the input, yeah? It kind of feeds us. And what happens often on retreat, the first day or so, there's a kind of relief just to be here and to be quiet. And then there's this moment where the mind gets hungry and it's and it's looking for some kind of contact everywhere. Yeah? It becomes kind of agitated and desperate. I don't know if you how many of you are feeling that, but it's so common. And it takes a big breath out. You know? It's a kind of natural process. It's often, as they say, the storm before the calm. So there's this, this particular food that we're not being fed in the same way. You know, we're still getting sense contact, but it's much gentler. It's more mediated. Yeah? One of the other foods you'll really be feeling the absence of is the intending, the doing. Yeah? What it's like to be here with nowhere to go and nothing to do. Feel it on your walking paths, how frustrating it can be. Yeah. So we're really starting to feel some of the stuff that keeps us trapped. These foods, consciousness is another, are the foods of birth, of ongoing, of being in the ocean and stream of suffering and distress. Yeah. So we need to know them and start to work with them and modulate them. Yeah. And to know, actually, if you're suddenly fasting, of course it takes some adjusting. Yeah. If you've been spending all day working on the computer, rushing here, rushing there, it's going to be 
a process. So we're really compassionate in that. And if the mind becomes quite agitated, walking can meet it better because it's got a bit more energy in it. Yeah? And if the mind's really got the kind of withdrawals, it'll often oscillate between being really sleepy and quite agitated. That's often how you can tell. You know? You're in a withdrawal process. So just, just know it, know the normality of it, that it's actually a causal experience that rises out of causes. And what you'll start to see is because the mind is contacting less, yeah, and the things it's contacting are green, beautiful, peaceful trees, it just starts to calm and settle. But we live in lives with a lot of impact. And sometimes we don't even know how much impact we live with. I'm sure most of you don't. You become used to it. But having stepped out of the monastery after 18 years or so, and what going into lay life, it was fascinating. <laughs> yeah? Not having driven for over 15, 16 years, to suddenly be behind a car on the motorway, behind the wheel of a car on the motorway, on a long hour and a half commute to work and back. And I thought, we can, you know, living as we live in a monastery, there was a lot of contact, and if you're senior, a lot to do, but there are whole levels of ways where contact is easier. Just not having to drive. Yeah, so it's, it takes a certain, um, what's the word? I had to get a bit fatter to manage it, as most of you who have seen me before will notice. <laughs> yeah, you know, a bit more, I can't even think of the word, but what it's like when you're a bit more solid. So just to recognise that the way we live our lives has an impact. It's not right or wrong, it's just a consequence. But what it does mean is when we come to retreat, there can be a kind of reverberation happening, just that the body needs to energetically settle, because it's been under such a lot of impact. Yeah. Not right, not wrong, but you know, it can be that a retreat is a real chance for, as Lumpur's child would talk about, a warm bath. You know, a bath for both the body and the heart. 
Yeah. And then there are moments where we can start and look and think, well, how I'm living my life, is it very kind? Yeah. The amount of pressure this physical system's under. Yeah. So for my part, I moved closer to where I worked. Yeah. Halves the commute. You know, sometimes we can recognise and just simply on a practical level adjust. And then it's what we do with that. Do we pick it up and make it dukkha? No. I could see for my body the commute was dukkha, but it didn't have to be for the mind, you know, the heart. And that's a bit like when we're sitting here now where the pain of our body starts to increase if we're not used to sitting. What do we do with that? Do we pick up the pain in the body and make it kind of mental dukkha? We add this other layer of stress and struggle and suffering because Physical stress, physical pain is just that. It's energy, it's movement. It can be a sign that we need to respond, but it doesn't have to be mental suffering. So as we are at this point in the retreat, it can be really helpful to look at what we're doing and whether we're creating suffering. It's all right if we are, because it gives us a chance to really examine how we do that. We get interested. Oh, Tanya's gone into this old pattern. And we start to learn more about the way our mind tends. So next time, a bit like I'm saying when, you know, here am I, I think I'm going on this really lovely retreat and it gets cut once and it gets cut twice, I can just hold and think, if I pick this up, the mind will go crazy. And we can just leave things where they are out of compassion. So, as we work with these teachings, it's to remember they were offered out of compassion by the Buddha. And you'll hear in the sutta, see as you read it, that again and again the Brahmin students ask for the Buddha to teach out of compassion. So, whatever we pick up, we pick up knowing that's what it's about. It's not to make it harder. Yeah? It's not to increase the judgment. It's about what makes it easier. So, in terms of working with it, this head, this not understanding. The Buddha said it's destroyed by understanding. 
with its army of powers and support, confidence, mindfulness, meditation, and determined energy. So, a practice I've had for a very long time is as I sit in meditation, I'll check out, are these factors present? Is there a sense of faith, confidence, that it is possible to practice, it's possible to be awake to what is going on? Is there a sense that I have the capacity, this system, at this time, to know the way things are? It's a good inquiry. Check if there's a sense of confidence there as we sit. We check if the mind is paying attention. Mindfulness. Right mindfulness. So we're we're really present with what is happening. And the Buddha talked about the four foundations of that. So usually it's easiest to check presence through the body. So we sit here and we can feel the presence of this embodied life. We're mindful. We can feel the breathing. We can feel the weight. So we check as we're sitting here that we have this faculty that we've engaged it, this capacity we have. That the mind has, and here they put concentration, or seen as samadhi, and I use the word collectedness. Because concentration has all the wrong movement to me. Years back I used to do a lot of transcribing of talks. And whenever I came across concentration, I always wrote it concentration. took me years to realise I was misspelling it. (laughs) And I realised... Often it has that quality. It isn't easeful. Yeah. So we use, I find, collected. Yeah. So the mind's not scattered and fragmented. It's stable. And the advantage of looking at it in terms of collectedness is that if we're looking in terms of concentration, we can be thinking of a very um, vertical experience, which can be the case with jhana samadhi practices. A very vertical thing, but as we know, if something's very tall and very vertical like that, it's easily knocked over. So if you think of collectedness as a very broad, stable mind, 
Yeah. It's stable. It isn't going to be blown over. So does the mind have this stable, grounded quality? Samadhi. And energy, kind of determined energy, there is actually a willingness, there's, there's um, a sense, once again, that goes with confidence, energy, uh, a sense of actually being able, being willing to attend. It's not just kind of slumped down and contracted. It's actually open, present, available. And in this, the Buddha had started with understanding panya, wisdom. Often it's put as the last of the faculties. Because, of course, it's the culmination. And in the Buddha's discourses, wisdom is knowing the way things are, knowing the Four Noble Truths. So when we're sitting here, when we're walking, when we're lying down, when we're eating our meal, we just scan occasionally, just say, are these faculties present in the mind? Is there a sense that I'm in a waking being, present, alert, willing, available, with the mind stable and open. It, it can be enough just to recollect them. Not as a judgment, but once again, as I've been saying throughout, we need to know what medicine we need. If the mind is all fragmented, this quality of samadhi is absent. If the mind is all fragmented, we, we undertake practices like the breathing to actually let it come back and come back in so that the mind and the body are in unity. Yeah. So we keep just, it can be like a little scan. If you find you've got, and you just feel all over the place, remember where the Buddha starts. The head is not understanding. It's split by understanding with these powers and support. Faith. Mindfulness. We, we know them. They're, the extraordinary thing about the Buddha is his ability to talk or, or address the aspects of our experience. Mm -hmm. So we, we have these ways of reflecting. Mm -hmm. Is there 
energy, determination present. Is there uh, understanding of dukkha? Yeah, how it arises. So we keep checking it out. And it, it's really helpful often at this point in a retreat. I know for some of you it's settling and, and it can unsettle then. You'll all be in slightly different places. That's why it's very good to have a framework that you just inquire into. What do I need to be here? Awake. Knowing the way things are. It feels like, I don't know for you, but certainly from this end that there's been probably enough input in the sense that there's also the text for yourselves to just contemplate and I don't want to come in over the top of that over the next days we'll go start looking at the actual questions but my encouragement is you just let this text be on your mind if you like or you can attend somewhere else but if you are that you just notice this dynamic of the Four Noble Truths because the Buddha said it's the only thing he teaches and any bit of it you pick up will have that quality, will have this in it and so when I was thinking, well, how will we approach this? And I had one plan and then another plan. And I thought, well, in the end it doesn't matter. Because the Buddha's teaching is holographic. Any bit you touch has all the rest of it there when you start exploring. And I've been restraining myself not to go into the different kinds of energy and all of that because we could start really expanding all of this out so know that whatever in your experience you pick up it's the four noble truths and they're they're different ways of being talked about, the different aspects of them that can be applied. Is there cessation? And there will be moments of it when you don't pick it up. Incredible feeling of liberation. Just don't pick it up. Or if you picked it up and you're sitting there and you feel its weight, you put it down. And it can really challenge our views about the way things should be. 
It's not irresponsible because right action comes out of wisdom. I think it's probably enough. Someone had asked me about um, standing and lying meditation. So maybe we start tomorrow morning in the kind of more meditative discussion with that. And we'll just look at the different forms of practice. Yeah? Is that soon enough? Okay. So maybe if we close with the recollection. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.